Good evening, church. It's good to see each of you here tonight, and thankful that you've come. we beginning something new tonight, but we're going to be doing it piecemeal through the fall because we have different things happening on different Sunday nights. So, for example, next Sunday night, as I mentioned this morning, uh, Dustin Clegg will be sharing with us the sense of direction that God's given him regarding a new church plant here in Wynn, Arkansas. And so I encourage all of you to come back next Sunday night for that as he shares. Bring your friends and neighbors and, um, and hear what God is about to do. So I think that's exciting. Uh, I think after that we have Labor Day weekend. So it may be a couple weeks before we do part two. But we are beginning tonight a study in the book of Haggai. So I want you to find that in your Bible. And uh, you can't take the whole time. So it's okay to use a table of contents, or you can go to the very end of the Old Testament, and it's the third book from the end. Go to the very end of the Old Testament, it's the third book from the end of the Old Testament. Little book of Haggai, it's exactly two chapters long, and rarely studied, one of the shortest books in the Bible, next to Obadiah. And, um, and so we will actually spend a lot of time in it. We're going to cover the most ground tonight by way of introduction, but then in our future studies, we're going to be covering, covering just a few verses at a time. And, and what are we doing with this? Well, I'm calling this first 11 verses tonight. This is a book that when you really want to know how something works in a car, for example, you lift the hood. You lift the hood and you look under the hood and you can gauge something or say something about that vehicle because you've lifted the hood. I've been a student of revival and spiritual awakening for much of my adult life. And if you and I were to sit down together, if this was something of interest to you, uh, I, most of the books I have in my personal library relate to church history, particularly the history of revival and spiritual awakening. Why does that fascinate me? Because when I read church history, I don't read a bunch of dates and just a listing of events. When I read church history, I'm able to, as you can, read between the lines and see something of the hand of God at work because it is sacred history. It is holy history because it's what God has been doing in the past with his people. And so one of the greatest things that you'll ever see happen in church history is when God's people suddenly come alive to Him. And we have different names for it. Revival, renewal, uh, time of refreshing, uh, spiritual awakening. There's a lot of different words to describe it. And, and Haggai in the Old Testament is one of the great descriptions of an instance of revival that you'll find in the Bible. One of the best ways that, that uh, I think it's described in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 3, where in the midst of a sermon that Peter is giving on the steps of the temple of Jerusalem, he says to the crowd, he says, repent and be converted so that your sins may be blotted out. So that, and so he's about to say something else. The first part of it we're pretty familiar with. When someone gets saved, their sins are blotted out. So he says, repent and be converted so that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When I first started reading or studying about revival in, um, in church history, I was fascinated by the descriptions of what happened to people 
uh, during those revivals. Each revival was unique. Each one was a little different. Each one had a different outcome. And, but it always began with the people of God and then overflowed that congregation or those congregations and began to affect their community. One of the ways that scholars make a distinction between uh, what happens in the church and what happens outside the church is they'll call what happens to God's people revival and what happens outside the church spiritual awakening. Because as God's people awaken to the reality of God, it has an effect on their friends and neighbors who don't know God. And they begin to come to Christ. So revival is not evangelism. Evangelism is a byproduct of revival. But revival is something, strictly speaking, that happens to the people of God. And so when Peter says in Acts 3.19, he says, Repent and be converted, so that your sins may be blotted out, so that right of every Christian. That part of your birthright as a son of God or a child of God is that you can experience and enjoy the presence of God. And he says times are refreshing. So it's not something that happens one time in a believer's life, but something that he intends would happen multiple times in a believer's life. And so as I read those historic descriptions, it took me a little while. I would get so excited about it, sometimes I'd get up and during a sermon, start telling stories of revival, and people's eyes would glass over. So I'm not going to do that to you, but they're wonderful stories. I get excited about it because it's something that God is doing. But I tried to fi figure out what's the common denominator. And to this day, I can take you to books written by seminary professors that I think are just wrong when they try to define what revival is. Revival is simply what happens to the people of God in the presence of God. Now, God is everywhere. There's no place you and I can go in the universe where God is not. God doesn't travel because he's so big, he's already there. There's no place you can go where he is not. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But we are not always conscious of his presence in much the way that this morning we saw how Isaiah became aware of the presence of God in a way that he had never known the presence of God before. And it changed his life. And so as he encountered the presence of God, and then he heard the voice of God, I mean, there was this transformation that took place in Isaiah's life. And similarly, people who have experienced personal revival or corporate revival in a church will describe the same kind of process. They'll use different words, different language, but essentially they'll say that they encountered God, they experienced God in some tangible, profound, powerful way, and they were never the same again. So I would define revival simply what happens. And often you see in historic revivals and in the Bible, you see different responses to the presence of God. Typically what happens in the Bible is people can't stay on their feet. They, they fall. They fall down. And it's almost a, a physiological reaction to the presence of God. It affects them physically. They begin to worship or they begin to feel such conviction about their own sinfulness, they begin to confess their sin. Did you see that in Isaiah this morning? I mean, as he experiences the presence of God, he suddenly sees himself as he truly is. And, and he just starts confessing sin. He can't deal with it. And as you would expect in historic revivals, confession of sin is one of the hallmarks of revival. 
So you read it and you say, well, revival is then people lining up at microphones and confessing their sins publicly. Well, maybe that could be revival. But, but what's significant is what's driving that activity, what's fueling that activity. It is individuals who are encountering the presence of God. So we could talk about revivals in Scripture. We could talk about revivals in church history. We could talk about revivals in our nation. In my lifetime, I've been privileged to be exposed to a couple major uh, revival events on a large scale, and then any believer has the privilege of experiencing revival on a personal scale. And um, I was, came to know Christ during what was called the Jesus People Movement now, uh, the Jesus People Era, where across this country, beginning in 1968 on the West Coast and then spreading across the United States well into the late 1970s, you had this tremendous movement of God. How do we know that? Well, we know it for a lot of reasons. We know it for statistics because of the tremendous swell of youth and young adults who were coming to know Christ. And many of the people my age in ministry and older today can trace their calling to ministry to that experience of the presence of God at that time. Uh, there was a similar movement that didn't last very long in the mid-1990s. And many uh, people who are in, on the mission field today can trace their sense of calling and ministry to that movement of God that happened in 1995. So we could talk about that a long time. I want to look at this one in Haggai because this was an occasion where God had a purpose for a group of people and they were not fulfilling that purpose. So let me give you some background uh, quickly before we move uh, through this. Uh, so we're lifting the hood on revival in this series, but tonight we just want to see the initial activity, initial steps. Those of you who are Bible scholars will remember that after Israel was brought out of Egypt. They went into the promised land, and they were supposed to subdue it and drive out all those who worshiped idols. Uh, last summer, we studied the book of Judges. You remember that? Got it all memorized, everything we studied? As we studied the book of Judges, we saw that they did not complete the task. And as a consequence of that, God allowed pressure to come into their lives because idolatry kept infecting the people of God. And then God began to raise up kings, first Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then the kingdom split, and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And one of the problems they consistently had was they kept falling away from faithfulness to God and worshiping idols. The northern kingdom ultimately went into captivity. They were conquered, and then the southern kingdom was also conquered. First, the Assyrians came along and conquered and carried off part of the leadership the Babylonians, and then the Medes and the Persians. By 586, the, all the key leaders of Israel were carried off into captivity, and the temple that was built by Solomon was leveled. It was destroyed, completely destroyed. 586 B.C. In 538 B.C., a new leader was in power, his name was Cyrus, and he issued a decree saying that the Jews could go back home. And if you read the book of Ezra, you'll read something about how leaders, uh, key leaders named Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of David, King David, 
and a man named Joshua, who was a high priest, how they and 50,000 others came back to Jerusalem. And one of the first things they began to do was to rebuild the temple. You know, when Solomon established the temple, the people, even if they were scattered around the world, they were supposed to look towards the temple when they prayed because it represented the dwelling place or the presence of God. And, and so their first task was to rebuild the temple. And for year one and year two, from 538 to about 536 B.C., they began to do that. They laid a foundation. There was great excitement, great rejoicing. But then there was some opposition. The people who had stayed behind, the Samaritans, opposed it. They complained to the officials, the leadership. And one thing led to another, and they stopped working on the temple in 536 B.C., and they did nothing for 16 years. Nothing. until August 29th, 520 B.C., 16 years later. What's special about August 29th, 520 B.C.? Haggai began to preach. He dates his messages. Uh, we don't know a lot about Haggai, except he was part of the group that returned from exile. Haggai, um, another prophet named Zechariah, and then later Malachi came along. He was much younger. But Haggai and Zechariah came together, and Haggai began to preach. And so I want you to see two characteristics of what's happening here. Here's a group of people. They had a mission or an assignment from God. They began it, but then they stopped it, and for 16 years they let it lie. So I want to talk first about a people who almost missed God. A people who almost miss God. Now, when I say that, I say that because they didn't miss him completely. They did miss him for 16 years. But they almost missed him completely. And whenever there is a corporate revival or a church-wide revival, what God is doing is waking his people up and moving them from being a religious people to being a people in relationship with him. In the Jesus people movement, one of the characteristics was they talked a lot about Jesus. We were about Jesus. It was all about Jesus. It wasn't about necessarily being Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Assembly of God. We talked about Jesus. And... Um, and so because of that focus, you had these people who were awakened to that. You had a whole generation of uh, people who had experimented with drugs, who had lived on the streets, who had experimented with different ways of living, and they were disillusioned with that. And the gospel came in, and lives were changed, and people said, you know, Jesus is the one who gives you the kind of trip that you really want. But here's the people who almost miss God. They're spiritually asleep, unresponsive for 16 years to the heart of God. Why? I want to suggest two reasons. First, they were led by collective reason. Listen to what Haggai says in the first two verses of his book. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, 
by the way, August 29th, 520 B.C., the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, so here's the word of the Lord, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, or armies, saying, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. He doesn't say my people are saying this, he says this people are saying this. Now, if God says something like that to you, does that cause any, any discomfort? Does that raise questions in your mind about your life and what you've been doing? It did for these individuals. They were saying to themselves, and it sounded very reasonable, yeah, we are, we're going to rebuild the temple. God wants us to rebuild the temple. We're all about rebuilding the temple. But you know, it's very reasonable to say it's just not time right now. We got other priorities, other things we need to take care of. We need to be concerned about national security. We're not saying no to God, we're just saying not right now. There's a real danger in thinking collectively, using our reason collectively and saying, you know, um, and this is also the danger of, of um, congregational decision making, is that we approach it sometimes as if it's our collective will in making a decision rather than trying to discern the will of the king as a congregation. There's a big difference. We are not a democracy. We are a theocracy. He is in charge. When we vote on something, it's not to find out what we think collectively. It's to reach a conclusion regarding the heart of God, what we believe God wants us to do as a church. But in this particular case, that collective reasoning had gotten them in the serious trouble. He's the one in charge. And we need to be very careful in our decision-making process. And by the way, I believe in congregational decision-making. I do. But, um, but we got to understand how we're supposed to make decisions. So they were led by collective reason. That was part of the reason they got in trouble. If you want to grow in Christ, be careful who you hang out with. If you want your heart to be white hot, you need to hang out with people whose hearts are white hot. If you want to grow in Christ, you need to hang out with other men and women who are growing in Christ. Be very careful that, that the group you run with is a group that loves the Lord Jesus. You want to fan that flame in your own heart, and you want to help fan that flame in other people's hearts. But they had this collective thing going on, and it was hurting them. So they were being led by collective reason, not by the heart of God. Secondly, they were led by a selfish motivation. Look at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? So they were saying, the time has not come. He said, what you're really saying is, I mean, do you see that? He's, he's, he knows their heart. They weren't really concerned about what pleased him. They were concerned about themselves. And there was a selfish motivation. Oh, it was dressed in religious language. It was dressed in, in um, good religious words and religious activities and religious behaviors. 
But it was a big, fat excuse for doing what would please the Lord. So God poses the question, is it time? You're saying it's not time. Is it time? And he's challenging their logic. What you're really saying is, see, God's house, all there was was a foundation. It was, it was just, that was all that they had done 16 years earlier, is laid a foundation. There was grass growing up through the cracks in the rocks. There were lizards scurrying around the boulders and the stones. I mean, it was just, it was sad. It's one of those lots that people wish in the neighborhood they would clean up. And yet they were living, and by using the language saying they were living in paneled houses, only the very wealthy could afford a house with panelings at that time. So this was a people who almost missed God. Collective reason, a selfish heart, something that simple, they talked themselves out of doing what God wanted them to do. Talk themselves out of it. That didn't seem very serious. Until we realize in the next few verses that God's really about to challenge them and show them, hey, it is serious and I'm acting. I'm showing you how serious it is. I want to talk to you next about a people awakened by God. A people awakened by God. Look at verse with the situation in the hearts of his people. First, he challenges his people to see what he sees. And this is consistent in most revivals in the Bible and in church history. He opens the eyes of his people to see their situation from his point of view. So much of the time, we only see our problem from our point of view, and we want God to help us with our situation. He, when revival occurs... There's a thing called brokenness that takes place. And what breaks is your perspective of your situation. And God enables you supernaturally to see your life, see your church, see your home from his point of view, and you can never see it the same way again. So you're broken. Your perspective is broken. He challenges his people to see what he sees. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. He's saying, think about it. Use your mind. You really want to reason? Think about this. Consider what's happening. And he, and he mentions five things that are going on in their life that somehow they have not been paying attention to. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. And as those people were standing there listening to Haggai the prophet, it's like the scales fell from their eyes. And they said, that's me. That's what's happening in my life. I realize that I'm working really hard and I'm not getting anywhere. It's like there's a mighty hand opposing me. There's something standing against me. There's something resisting my forward movement in my life. I'm working as hard as I can. Yes, I want to get to the temple someday. Yes, I want to build on top of that foundation. And one of the great traps that you and I can get into is thinking, I got to take care of these things first and then I can deal with what God wants me to do. And dear one, what we have to learn to do is just do what God wants first and let him take care of the rest. But obviously God was at work in their lives trying to get their attention. 
working to get their attention, and now he had their attention through a prophet that was sent and who's speaking to them the truth. Can I confess something to you? And this, this, this may not mean anything to y'all, but if, um, if you knew the way I, I was wired, you'll appreciate what I'm about to share. I used to think taking a day off was for sissies. I didn't think I needed a day off. I felt there'd be plenty of time for a day off when I was dead. But there was too much to do. And it doesn't mean I didn't have any downtime. It doesn't mean I didn't retreat, didn't find times to refresh my heart with the Lord or spend time alone with the God. I spent time alone with God daily. I just didn't know what to do with a day off. And when I became your pastor, um, I was your pastor for probably about a year, two years, and I got really convicted about that. I did. And about the time I got convicted about it, I just, I'm just being honest with you, I was running as hard as I could run. Uh, Y'all know that I, I try to study in the mornings and I would sessions and other things. And, and uh, just had, just, just tired. Push and push and push and push and push and push. I, I liked that most of my life. But y'all wore me out. And I got really convicted about what I was doing. When my kids were, you know, little, I did make time for them. I took them out. We did things together. But I just didn't think in terms of a day off. And I thought, Lord, this is seriously the dialogue. I thought, Lord, I don't have time enough now to get everything done. How in the world can I take a day off? He said, Don, you have to trust me. That I can do more with you in six days than you can do with yourself in seven. And so on Mondays, it's become Mondays. It's not always Mondays. I try to spend extra time alone with the Lord. And then I push everything back about 10 or 10.30 and I grab my wife and we go to lunch. Oh, I text the, the staff. I text you guys, don't I? Say, don't bother me. No, I don't do that. <laughs> Say, if you need me, call me, whatever, text me. And if there's an emergency or whatever, we deal with that. It's, it's not a legalistic thing. But you know, I've learned that I can do more in six days than I could do in seven. These people here went through the same experience. Lord, I can't, I can't imagine having the resources and the time to work on the temple. 
I've got too much to do over here. And God is saying, you've sown much, but bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not full. You clothe yourself, but no one's warm. You earn wages, and it's like a little hole in the bottom of your bank account, and everything keeps flooding out. You keep doing it your way, people, he's saying. You keep doing it your way, people of Jerusalem in 520 B.C. You keep doing it your way, you're never going to get the temple built. He challenges his people to see what he sees. And when they, they saw it from his point of view, they began to change. They began to change. Second thing that I see when he awakens his people is he calls his people to repentance. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says it again. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. And then he shows them again what's happening to them. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, on all the labor of your hands. Scholars call that remedial judgment or corrective judgment. In the strictest sense, it's not judgment as in the final judgment. It's more, it's more properly would be described in the New Testament as discipline. But God allowing things not to go the way somebody wants it to go in order to get their attention off of themselves or off of what is, is keeping them in a little box and a mindset that keeps them from serving him. He doesn't want religious people. He wants people in a relationship with him. He wants you and I to be in this relationship. So if I run... And I keep running from God, and I keep saying, God, I can't do what you're asking me to do right now. I've got other things to do. If I run, I really could face this kind of corrective judgment, according to Haggai. So let me, let me pose to you eight diagnostic questions. Are you running from God? Let me, let me pose eight questions, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one, but I want to share these questions let me encourage you, if one of these questions challenges you or speaks to you or really sticks in your mind, you might want to jot it down and just think about it and pray about it and say, oh God, what are you saying to me? Maybe there's an area of your life that he wants you to turn over to him in a new way and say, God, I clearly cannot take care of this issue in my life, so God, I'm going to give it to you. I believe you can do more with this problem. I believe you can do more with my life. I can believe you can do more with my work if I give it to you and just simply follow you. God. That's what they had done. Fear of their enemies. Fear of the Samaritans. Fear of the criticism. Have you let fear shut down your heart for God? Second question. Are you ignoring an early direction from God in your life? God had given them direction. 16 years later, they hadn't followed it. You can imagine that in times of revival, how many individuals will come to their pastor or share in their testimony that God had spoken to me as a young man. God had spoken to me 
as a young adult about something and I had dismissed it. I hadn't listened to him. I hadn't responded to him. And now that I'm beginning to, to taste him, to experience him, I find that calling coming back to me again. And so are you ignoring some early direction from God in your life? And listen, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. So don't, you don't have to make up anything here. He will bring it directly to your mind. You will know. You will know. Number three, have you stopped short of what God wants you to do? You started, but you haven't finished. God said, I want you to do this. I want you to fix this area. I want you to address this issue in your life. I want you to take these steps. And maybe you took the initial steps, but you haven't. You stopped short of finishing what God was leading you to do. Partial obedience, we discover in the Scripture, is just disobedience. Number four, have you allowed responsibilities? This gets close to my house, to me. Have you allowed responsibilities to crowd out your God-given opportunities? The greatest work in your life that God made you for can get buried under busyness. Number five, are you basing your life decisions on personal or popular opinion? Personal or popular opinion? Now, popular opinion says, here's what you do with your life. And this is really, we've talked about this before, but there's a whole world system that has a predetermined plan for what you're to do with your life. Um, I was asked by someone recently about my past and coming to win Arkansas, and I said, well, if you look at, if you look at my life and the, the things that I've done, I said, there is not a discernible career path. I've simply done the next thing that he told this guy to do. Popular opinion says, well, if you're going to go into ministry, you have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to cross these T's and dot these I's. You've got to go to this school. You've got to get this degree. And then you start with a little church, and then you get a bigger church, and then you become, get your own TV show or something. I don't know. God said do this. Or God's priorities. And we all have priorities, things that are important to us. But are those things important to God? I have an agenda. His matters. I have agenda, but only his matters. He said, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house, you know, you got an agenda. You think you have to be at your house. What about my house, he says. Number seven, are you delaying obedience until the right time? You know, when I retire, then I'll get serious about it. When I, when I take care of this situation in my life, then I'll address what God wants me to do. When God is leading you to obey him, the only time you can do that obedience is now. You can't obey him at some distant point in the future and think that the, the field is the same. The only time you can obey God is right now. And then number eight, last question. Are you deeply dissatisfied with the life you are pursuing? That's what was happening to these people in Haggai's day. They were doing what they 
thought they needed to do, what they wanted to do, what they felt was important to do, but they were not satisfied. They were not happy. They were not living an abundant life. And he has called you and I to joy. But sometimes we have let life suck the joy out of us. There are many things that you are doing. Not all of them are important. Not all of them have eternal significance. Not all of them matter in the same way. So these people discovered that God was actually working in their circumstances to hem them in more and more and more and more until they heard his voice. It speaks to me of the heart of God for you and me. Sometimes our image of God is some harsh, distant authority figure who is zapping us because we are just dumb and we're not as smart as him. That's not the picture here in Haggai. Here's a God who comes to his people and he says, let's talk about it. Let's look at what's happening in your life, and he just hymns them in. No success here, no success here, not getting ahead here, not being happy here. And he keeps hemming them in until they finally turn to him and they say, we get it. Now I'm going to just read, since it's going to be a few weeks before we get to it, we, we have looked at the first 11 verses. But can I just read to you what happened after this? Just a little hint of what's going to come. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, God, in the words of Haggai the prophet, and um, I need to get this other page, that the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke to the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Now listen what happened. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. August 29th, 520 B.C. So what happened there? They said, we get it. I surrender all. Yes, Lord, I come. And what did God do? It says that God came and he stirred up their spirit. I honestly don't know entirely what that means. But it must have been good because they got it done. And they seemed to have great joy in the process. I call that revival. Precious thing that happens. When you and I back up and say, God, show me my life the way you see it. And let's chunk those things that are a waste of my life.